All right. Good morning, Living Hope Christian Center in Emeryville. This is the first time in the history of our church that both campuses are having services simultaneously in two locations. And so today we get to see more than ever before that Living Hope Emeryville and Sons and Daughters San Francisco, we are one. Amen. Come on, give God a shout of praise for that. Emeryville, I was just telling these fine people here that uh, today is me and Pastor Sonny's 18-year wedding anniversary. I'm so thankful to her. She is my mentor and my tormentor <laughs> and my baby's mama. You know, today is actually the 18-year mark. Our daughter's nine years old, so literally today we're also celebrating half of our marriage was child-free, and the other half of our marriage was child-full. So we have, uh, we have had a child for half of our marriage, and we're childless for half of our marriage, and uh, now we have to try something else. I don't, I don't know what we're going to do for the, for the rest of the years, but it just, it just folds directly in half right here really, really nicely. I should probably get into the message now. I'm going to preach to you now. Is that okay? Uh, uh, enough comedic foolishness. All right. So today is the last day. Thank the Lord that today is the last day of the Choose Your Own Adventure series. Because this has been some foolishness and nonsense for the last five weeks. <laughs> no, actually, it's been, it's been challenging for me, but it's been a great discipline to let other people choose your sermon topics and then to have to figure out every week, what in the world am I going to do with that? Right? And uh, there's been some divergence. Uh, you know, in Emeryville, the first Sunday was humanism, and over here it was singleness. Right? And then uh, the next Sunday in Emeryville was church history. They wanted to hear about church history. And then over here it was dating. You could tell there's a generational divide across the bay that y'all are thinking about two different things. And then the one day that, that the, the topic was the same across campuses was the third Sunday in July, and the topic was marketplace. Um, something I know nothing about because I work in the church. And Mickey doesn't know anything about that either. So on both sides of the bay, we had other people talking to us. We had the panel here, and then I just threw some scripture on it at the end of it, you know. And uh, then we had Jimmy Jun on the other side of the bay that dropped it like it was hot over there, and that was really, really cool. If you get the podcast, the Living Hope podcast has both sermons from both sides of the bay, if you, if you get that. Um, but today, uh, since I'm live streaming the Emeryville, what I try to do is take the topic you chose and take the topic they chose and put them together into one sermon. Y'all pray my strength in the Lord. Now, okay, let me, let me lay this out. The topic they chose was purity. Apparently, a lot of them over there are in sin. You hear that, Emeryville? Y'all are in sin. I know why y'all chose that, how to get free. Ain't nobody over here in sin because y'all didn't choose purity. That wasn't even sin, wasn't even on the list. <laughs> y'all want to know how to get a man. The topic they chose with purity and the topic y'all chose for today over here in San Francisco is social justice. So I'm going to talk about sin and social justice. Justice and sin. What is the relationship between justice and sin and I'm in uh, John chapter 8. I'm going to read a few verses of scripture to you. And let's see if uh, we can pull this together here and make some kind of sense of this. If not, it's your fault. <laughs> John chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. 
But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would make some sense out of what I'm about to say. In Jesus' name, <laughs> amen. I would like to propose to you today that the categories of sin and justice are intimately connected. The categories of sin and justice are intimately connected. In actuality, the definition of justice depends upon the reality of sin. If there is no sin, then there can be no justice. In order for justice to be served, something has to be determined to be sin or wrong, morally wrong. The definition of justice is when sin is properly punished and righteousness is properly rewarded. When sin is properly punished and righteousness is properly rewarded, we have justice. When sin goes unpunished, we have injustice. When righteousness goes unrewarded, we have injustice. When a wicked person does not receive punishment for their wickedness, we have injustice. When a righteous person does not receive reward for their righteousness, we have injustice. We all understand this, right? You're at your company, you're the one who does all the work on the project, but your partner on the project who did literally nothing takes the project completed by you, presents it to the boss, and he receives the promotion and all the accolades for doing such a marvelous job on the project. You get no reward at all. How do you feel about that? It's injustice. Why? Because you did the work, someone else got the reward. Secondly, he is wicked, which means he robbed you, he thieved from you, he took the work that you did, and the wicked received the reward of the righteous. And see, this is, this is the epitome of injustice. Not just when righteousness goes unrewarded and wickedness goes unpunished, but the epitome of injustice is when wickedness receives the reward of righteousness. And righteousness receives the punishment of wickedness. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now when we talk about the concept of justice and sin on a Sunday morning in a church setting, we're talking about the subject of justice, not from a social perspective, not from a governmental perspective, not from a psychological perspective, not from a legal perspective, but from a biblical perspective and from a divine perspective. Because when we're talking about justice on a Sunday morning at church, we must start with the fundamental presupposition that God is ultimately the judge. And God being ultimately the judge is both good news and bad news. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe it's around verse 17, somewhere in the, the final verses of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter says, since you call upon a father who judges with impartiality, who judges every man's works with impartiality, live your lives here with reverent fear. Since you call upon a father who judges each man's works with impartiality, live your lives here with reverent fear. Fear. There's a reverential fear with which we should live our lives on a daily basis. Why? Because we believe that God is the judge. And when we say that God is the judge, that means that no one ever gets away with anything. No one 
ever gets away with anything. Not O.J. Simpson, not Hitler, not Mussolini, not Idi Amin. I almost named a few other controversial people, but we won't go there. But anyway, no one ever gets away with anything. Why? Because God is ultimately the judge of everyone and all things. And, and so often in life, it seems that, that there are injustices that have gone unpunished. As an African-American, I can look back on the history of African-Americans in this country, and there are many injustices that have been leveled against us that have gone seemingly unpunished. That is, they've gone unpunished in a human court, but they have not gone unnoticed before the Lord. Which means that God is ultimately the judge of each and every one, and each and every person must ultimately stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And standing before the judgment seat of Christ, that's a scary thing. I mean, I don't even care how spiritual you are. I don't even care how many tongues you talk in. You can give Shonda my bow ties all day long. Who stole my Hondas? You can, you know, you can lift your hands during worship and sing, but it's a scary thing that every single one of us is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will stand completely and totally without excuse. So when we talk about injustice, there are really two categories when we relate it to sin. There's internal injustice. That is the sin in my own heart because every sin is an injustice against God and man. And that's really the biblical concept of sin. It's not just what I do against God, but what I do against humanity. And secondly, there's external injustice. And that's the kind of injustice that happens in the world. The kind of oppression that happens in the world. And when we're talking about the, the injustice that happens in the world, or social injustice, we're talking about an unfair system that rewards one group of people with rewards they don't deserve and punishes another group of people with punishments they don't deserve. That restricts one group of people and that frees and that benefits another group of people and that benefits one group of people at the expense of another group of people. That kind of social injustice, if there's one fundamental truth to the gospel, is that God judges justly. Which means, this is the good news, when you stand before God, he don't care who you are, where you come from, what you've been through, he judges each and every one of us on the same merits, on the same foundation. Matter of fact, Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now, uh, let's look at this story about the woman caught in adultery. There are these Individuals called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders in Israel in the first century during the time of Jesus. The Pharisees prided themselves as being the penultimate keepers of the law. The Pharisees, they studied scripture night and day. They memorized every word of the Bible. They were constantly looking at the scriptures to see if there was any law, any commandment, any ordinance that God had required of them that they were not living up to. And if they discovered any law, any requirement, any commandment, any ordinance, any precept that they were not living up to, they strove to bring their lives into obedience to God. The Pharisees not only studied the scriptures, but they strove to obey the scriptures. Okay? So these were devout men. These men lived to be servants of the Lord. The problem with the Pharisees is they were very proud and very self-righteous. The problem with the Pharisees is that they thought that their adherence to the law gave them the right to judge other people who did not live up to the law the way they did. Now, Jesus is minding his own business, teaching in the temple, just came down from the Mount of Olives. He's sitting and he's talking with his own disciples, minding his own business, having his own church service in the temple with his disciples, and all of a sudden he's interrupted. The Pharisees come in and they've got this woman with them that they're dragging. She's probably either naked or scantily clad. Why? Because they burst into a room where she was having sex with some dude and they drug her out of the bed 
in the midst of the very act. And here's the crazy thing about it. The crazy thing about it, it was probably one of their homies. They probably set her up. And they didn't bring the dude. They just brought her. It's interesting. They said, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Really? With who? Where's he at? Isn't it interesting that nobody stopped to say, was she committing adultery with herself? Why is she alone? Doesn't it drive you crazy when there's a double standard? You know, have you ever had somebody say to you, you haven't called me in two months? And you ever think, but you haven't called me either. <laughs> like, why am I the one who's solely responsible for this relationship? You didn't say hi to me last Sunday. Well, you didn't say hi to me either. <laughs> why is it only my responsibility to be the high-sayer and caller in this relationship? Hello? And they interrupt Jesus. Now, here's the thing. They interrupt Jesus. They throw the woman down in front of him. And they say, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Moses commanded that we should stone her. What do you say? And the scripture said, they said this because they were looking for a means to accuse him. Isn't it interesting that they brought an accusation against her because they were looking for a way to accuse him? They couldn't find anything wrong with his life, so they wanted to see how he handled it when he was brought into the presence of someone else's life. They bring her in, they throw her down and say, we caught her in the very act of adultery. Moses said we should stone her. What do you say? Now here's the problem. This is the dilemma that Jesus faces. If he says, yes, stone her. Now he's actually ordered an execution, something that the Jewish people were forbidden to do. They were under the occupation of the Roman Empire. So now they're going to go to Caesar and say, this dude is ordering executions over here in Israel. So now Caesar's going to come in and see him as a rebel and probably put him to death. If he says, no, you can't execute her, then they're going to say, see, he doesn't believe in the law of Moses. And they're going to try to get him executed now because obviously he's a, bl a blasphemer and he doesn't believe in the Bible. So if he says, kill her, he's anti-Rome. If he says, don't kill her, he's anti-Moses. They think, we've got him right where we want him. And what does Jesus do? It says, he pretends not to hear them. And he just stoops down and starts writing in the sand with his finger. Meanwhile, though, they keep pressing him. Did you hear what we said, Jesus? We found this woman. We caught her in the very act of adultery. What do you say? Moses said we should stone her. What do you say we do? Completely ignores them. Just keeps writing in the sand. Did you hear me, Jesus? See, he doesn't know what to say. That's why he's not responding to us. He doesn't know what to say. They did not realize that God's delay in responding to injustice doesn't mean that God doesn't see, doesn't mean that God doesn't care, and doesn't mean that God doesn't have anything to say. It simply means that God is preparing himself to respond in an appropriate way. One of the hardest things for us to embrace when it comes to injustice is the seeming inactivity of God. The seeming apathy of God. Does God care? Does God see? Is God going to do anything about it? We can find ourselves feeling like, I've got to procure justice for myself. Why does Jesus not respond to the accusation against this woman? First and foremost, because it was unjust. Why was it unjust? It was unjust for a number of reasons. First reason, they discriminated against this woman. They did not accuse the man. They only accused the woman. That's unjust. Number two, the motives of their heart were to actually use it as an accusation against Jesus. They had an improper motive, meaning they didn't actually care about righteousness or adultery. They committed adultery all the time. They didn't care about adultery. 
They cared about their, social, their political agenda, and they were attacking Jesus so that they could advance their political agenda, not because they cared at all about righteousness. And number three, Jesus knew that if he were to affirm this accusation against this woman, he would be rewarding the wicked for their scheme. He would be judging the wicked. I mean, he would be judging the righteous and rewarding the wicked. And so he delays. And finally, they keep pressing him, pressing him, pressing him. We don't know how long, what period of time transpired before Jesus finally responds. But when Jesus finally responds, he simply stands up and says, whichever one of you has no sin, throw the first stone. And then the rest of us will join in. Translation, yeah, we're going to stone her. Everybody pick up your stones. You ready? We're going to stone her. Everybody got stones? That one's not big enough. You need a bigger stone. You got your rock, jo uh, Joshua, Joseph, J J Jeremiah? Sorry, Joshua? Sorry, I always mess up your name. Ying, you got a stone? You're big. You're strong. Pick up your stone. Come on. I need everybody to get a big stone in your hand. Everybody, because we're about to stone the heck out of this woman. And everybody gets stones. He goes, you all ready? They said, yeah, we're ready. He goes, we're going to stone a woman? They said, yeah, we're going to stone a woman. He goes, all right. All I need is for whichever one of you has no sin to cast the first stone. And then he stoops back down, keeps writing in the sand. And it said, one by one, from the oldest of them to the youngest of them, in shame, they drop their stones. In conviction, they drop their stones and walked away. Why, why do you think it was one by one? You know why I think it was one by one? I think probably the most righteous Pharisee among them, when Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, he took his stone. He said, that's me. And he stepped toward the woman and he, he was just about to throw the stone, but he looked down to see what Jesus was writing in the sand. And the first thing Jesus had written out were several of his sins. And he goes, I forgot about those. And he drops the stone and says, I'm about out of here. <laughs> and the next guy didn't see what happened. He's like, what's he afraid of? Man, that little punk, I'll throw the stone. And he steps up and he looks down and Jesus probably wrote his name and his sins right after his name. He goes, oh, I'm about here. One by one, they felt exposed because Jesus knew their sin. And then everybody's gone and Jesus is still writing. Thaddeus, I know what you did. Mm hmm. Matthias, I know what you did last summer. <laughs> and he looks up, looks at the woman and says, Where are those accusers of yours? Are there none left to accuse you? Nobody threw a stone? And there's all these stones on the ground everywhere, but no people holding them. She says, none, Lord, they're all gone. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Which is crazy because he's the only one who could have. He could have said, they're all gone, huh? Yeah, they're all gone. Good, then I'm going to condemn you. <laughs> Give me these stones, you wicked woman. And honestly, he would have been perfectly within his right to do it. I mean, if that's how the story went, we still would have said Jesus was righteous. If there's any fundamental truth to the gospel, is no one has the right to condemn us but God. But God does have the right to condemn us. You know why? Because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short 
of the glory of God. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You say, well, I've made up for my sins. Really? Can you make up for your sins? What can you do? How many old ladies can you help across the street to make up for your sins? There's no way you and I can make up for our sins. But here's the grace that the God who could have condemned her determines not to. He says, neither do I condemn you. But then he says, go and sin no more. We love the first part. We don't like the second part. He says, I don't condemn you, but don't be doing that anymore. You better cut it out. Look at your neighbor and say, you better cut it out. You better stop that. In this passage of Scripture, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus makes it plain that he cares both about justice and purity. He cares about justice and purity. He cared about justice, which meant that he would not let wicked people condemn this woman. He would not stand by and watch wicked people condemn this woman and say amen to it. But he also cared about purity because he looked into the eyes of this woman that he just defended and said, now cut it out and go live your life differently. Stop it. He cares about justice, and he also cares about purity. What I find in the world is that there seems to be, and especially in the church amongst Christians, there seem to be two kinds of people, the kind that care about justice, but not purity, and the kind that care about purity, but not justice. The kind that care about purity would have been out there with their stones, because this is sin, and we've got to denounce sin, and we've got to stand up to sin, and we've got to tell people this is sin, and you've got to stop your sinning, and, and God's going to kill you if you don't stop your sinning, and stop your sinning, you wicked, you wicked people. And then the kind that care about justice is like, no, 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 we need equal rights for everybody, and, it's, and forget about it. Jesus is love, and he's love and compassion, and he cares about everybody, and, and you know, forget about if it's right or wrong. God is the judge of all things, and none of us should ever say anything about anybody's lifestyle. Just live the way you want and do what you want because it's all about justice, and we forget that justice and sin are intimately related categories. We must denounce the injustice outside, but we also must renounce the injustice inside. Amen. You remember Barbecue Becky? I would love to meet Barbecue Becky. I would love to sit down and have a little chat with Miss Barbecue Becky. You ain't gotta you ain't gotta Google it, Keone. I'll tell you who Barbecue Becky is. Oh, there's a bunch of y'all Googling it all over the place. The internet bandwidth just dropped 80%. <laughs> Barbecue Becky was a modern day Pharisee of illegal Pharisee of America. A European-American woman who was walking through Lake Merritt in Oakland, California, and saw an African-American man barbecuing by Lake Merritt. How dare he set up a barbecue by Lake Merritt? Barbecue Becky had looked at the law, and she noticed that in the Lake Merritt vicinity, there are certain sections that are marked for barbecues and certain sections that are marked no barbecue. And this man, how dare he, was barbecuing in a no barbecue section. And Barbecue Becky thought, this looks like a job for Barbecue Becky. <laughs> and Barbecue Becky approaches the man and says, excuse me, 
You are not allowed to barbecue in this section of Lake Merritt. Please extinguish your barbecue and exit the, the, the premises immediately. And the man looked at her and said, I've been barbecuing at this spot since I was a little boy. Get up out my face. <laughs> and Becky looks at him and says, and this is the crazy thing. She says, you're going to jail. You're going to jail. You're going to jail. Which is the most explosive thing that you can say to an African-American male? You're going to jail. Translation, I have the power to put you in jail. I weld the power to put you in jail. And I have the audacity to exercise that right over a barbecue grill. Is that serious for me? So she gets on the phone and calls the police to report an illegal barbecue. Not murder, not rape, not an assault, not vandalism, barbecue. She waits on the phone on hold with the police. She calls the police and says, I'm calling to report an illegal barbecue. And they say to her, Please hold. <laughs> Translation, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> she waits on hold for two hours. It's that serious, sir. She stands in front of this man on the phone with the police for two hours. <laughs> Chewing gum. You know somebody's serious when they chew gum. Meanwhile, the man's wife comes and starts filming her. What are you doing? She goes, I'm on the phone with the police. Why are you on the phone with the police? Because it's illegal to barbecue here. I tried to tell him that he can't barbecue here, so I'm calling the police. He's going to jail. And his wife starts going back and forth with her. Really? Really? Is it that serious to you? Why don't you mind your own business? And so they start going back and forth. And this went on for more than an hour. Finally, the police comes, and Becky runs to the police officer and starts crying. <laughs> and the police officer says, what's wrong? And she goes, they're harassing me. No, Becky, you're harassing them. And guess what the police officer does? Takes a statement from her and leaves. No arrest doesn't say anything to the man his wife's video gets put up on YouTube goes viral everybody in Oakland watched that video at least five times <laughs> and that the following Saturday every single african-american resident of the city of Oakland showed up at that spot with a barbecue grill wearing barbecue Becky t-shirts with pictures of her on the phone <laughs> and pictures of her crying. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that the man actually was breaking the law? He wasn't supposed to be barbecuing there. Nobody is arguing for the legality of barbecuing that spot. Everyone was arguing for the methodology of barbecue Becky. The methodology was wrong. Why? Because she took it upon herself to be an executor and an enforcer of the law when she had no business doing so. And secondly, she saw herself, the way she acted, she saw herself as above this man, looking down on this man. It was a statement of inferiority. I'd like to talk to Barbecue Becky. I'd like to know how she's doing now. Have you noticed the internet always wins? <laughs> how about Mia Wilson? You know who she is? Her and her sister were riding on the BART, and they get off the BART, probably on their way home, and a man comes up behind them. The suspect's name is John Coward, I mean Cowell. He takes out a knife and stabs her to death and tries to stab her sister to death. No reason whatsoever. 
And it's interesting, you see this video, and it's all over the place where her father, he's being interviewed. And he says, with tears in his eyes, I only want one thing, just one. I want justice for my murdered daughter. That's all I want. I want justice for my murdered daughter. It's interesting that the police found him and very nicely arrested him. They didn't choke him. They didn't slam him down on the ground. They just very kindly and nicely and calmly arrested him. They found the murder weapon at the scene. And now he's going to trial. His attorney is, you know, pleading insanity, of course, you know. How do you feel when you hear about that? Like, what if this guy were to actually get off with the insanity plea? And they just, you know, put him in a mental hospital, whatever. You know what that's called? Injustice. When a wicked person does not receive the punishment for their wickedness, it's called injustice. What would you say if the judge in the John Cowell trial was a judge of love and compassion and simply said, I'm a merciful judge. I'm a loving and compassionate judge. And so I'm going to let you off the hook for what you did. You know what we would do? I would be out there with you. We would be rioting in the streets. We'd be looting. No, maybe not looting. I'm sorry, I just remember O.J., just a little, I mean, uh, uh, not O.J., um, what's that dude's name? Got beat by the police? Rodney King, yeah. How many of you remember Rodney King? Y'all weren't even born yet, most of y'all. Oh, Lord. Anyway, the LAPD beat the snot out of that guy, and then all of them got off, like all of the cops. And I mean, they, they had him on video, like, the guy's on the ground, he's not moving. They're still beating him with batons. I mean, it was, it was flagrant. And all of them got off. Like, all of them. All of the cops that did it, they got off. And when they got off, when the, you know, when the, the jury gave the verdict, um, every minority just went crazy. You know, black people and Latinos especially. And... Um, What's sad is they destroyed a bunch of Korean stores in that process. And there had to actually be a process of reconciliation between Koreans and African Americans because of the damage that was done to the Korean community, who had, which is another injustice, by the way, who had nothing to do with the original injustice. Or Reginald Denny, who was a, a, a European American truck driver who was pulled from his truck and beaten in the street who had nothing to do with the Rodney King verdict. Isn't it funny that the way in which we react to injustice, we can actually create more injustice? But the father of Mia Wilson said, I just want justice for my daughter. That's all I want is justice for my daughter. Let me tell you something. God, the Father, wants one thing and one thing only. He wants justice for his son because his son was also murdered. His son Jesus was taken with lawless hands and he was nailed to a cross. He had committed no crime. He had committed no sin. He had done no unrighteousness. No injustice was found in him, but he was given the reward of the wicked for his righteousness. Remember, the greatest abomination is when the wicked go unpunished and the righteous receive the punishment of the wicked. Here's the crazy thing, though. Remember, I quoted Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then the, ver the next verse says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do we, if we understand the gospel, justice is at the very heart of the gospel. Listen, God had a dilemma. He wanted to save the whole world. He wanted to forgive everyone of all their sins. He wanted to wash away all of our sins and wipe the slate clean, but the problem is he's a just God. He's a righteous God. And just like no judge could claim to be a just judge if he stood at his bench and simply forgave people for their crimes. God's justice demands that he punishes sin. 
He must punish it or else he's not righteous. And so what does he do? His son volunteers. I'll go, Pop. I'll go, Dad. I know you have to punish sin, so lay the punishment upon me. And he goes to the cross in defense of his father's own righteousness. And he bears upon his body on the cross the sin of the world. All of the punishment of the world was laid upon Jesus. This is the gospel. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And at the heart of the gospel is this concept of justification. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and following, Therefore, having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we now have access into this grace in which we now stand. To be justified means to be brought to justice. And to be brought to justice means that God has looked at every injustice of your life and he has washed it all away. And how has he washed it all away? By taking the penalty of it and putting it on his son on the cross. That is, God brings us to justice by laying the penalty of our sin on his son, Jesus Christ, so that our sin does not go unpunished. The grace of God and the compassion of God does not mean that he doesn't care about our sins, that he just looks at us in all of our sin and says, it's okay. We're good. We're good. And by the way, that's not forgiveness. You know when somebody has actually sinned against you and they come and apologize to you? Don't ever say, ah, that's okay. That's okay. You know how we tend to do that, right? You know? Hey, man, sorry about that. Say, ah, that's okay. I don't mention it. Ah, it wasn't a big deal. Sometimes it is a big deal. Sometimes in order to truly forgive, you must fully confront. So in order to truly forgive, you have to say, yes, I need you to understand what you did to me. I need you to understand the pain that you inflicted upon me. I need you to fully understand the sin that you committed against me. It's only when you fully understand the sin that you committed against me that I can truly forgive you. He said, okay, you understand what you did? Yes, I forgive you. Not, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's going to leave a scar on me. It's going to leave a mark on me, but I can forgive you. I can forgive you. Why? Because God has forgiven me. He has washed away all of my sins, and he took the punishment for my sin and laid it upon Jesus. And he took the punishment for your sin, and he laid it upon Jesus. But we have no access to that redemption, to that salvation, to that sanctification, except through faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants justice for his son Jesus. And the justice that we give God for his son Jesus is believing in the reason for his sacrifice. The worst injustice that we could commit is to fail to believe in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. The worst sin is not sexual immorality or thievery or, or any of these things. The worst sin is refusing to believe in the sacrifice. It is rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus, saying, I don't need it, I don't believe it. That is the worst sin that we could ever commit. All sin is a form of injustice. Whew. It's a little hot up here. I'm sweating like a Hebrew slave up here. I almost said a Negro slave, but sorry. I'm a little racist. Y'all haven't... The Lord is still working out some inner injustices in me. You still with me, Emeryville? All right, I hope they said yes over there. I'm just going to trust by faith. I was reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and following. The scripture says, Now this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion and lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that none of you in this matter should defraud his brother. For God is the avenger of all, sin, of all such. Do you hear what he says there? He says that sexual immorality of every kind is a form of injustice. It's a form of defrauding your brother or your sister. 
that none of you in this way would defraud his brother, for God is the avenger of all such. Remember we said God is a God of justice, which means every act of injustice, he avenges it. You want to talk about God's love and compassion? Yes, we want the judge in the Mia Wilson case to have love and compassion, but not for John Cowell, for Mia Wilson's family. We want him to look at her weeping father and have compassion. We want him to look at her sister and her parents and her family members weeping in the court and have love and compassion, so much love and compassion that he gives justice in this case, that he doesn't accept any excuses. Paul says sexual immorality is of, of any kind is a form of defrauding your brother or your sister. That includes virtual sexual immorality. You're defrauding your brother or your sister. It's an injustice. Why? Because it is robbing another human being of the wholesomeness of the kind of sexual interaction that God created us for in the covenant of marriage. And the scripture says God will avenge. That's crazy. And Jesus said, if I look at a woman to lust after her, I've already committed adultery with her. That means if I look at a woman and I lust after her, I have to deal with the, her father in heaven who's the avenger. That's crazy. Which means there's injustices in the world that I must denounce. And there's injustices in me that I must renounce. And if I denounce injustice, oh, thank you. Yeah, let me just wet the whistle a little bit. <laughs> if I denounce the injustice that I see out there without renouncing the injustice that I see in here, I join that crowd of Pharisees who's holding stones. And you know what's crazy? put Barbecue Becky in there where that woman was. And we're all holding stones over Barbecue Becky. What she did was wrong. It was an injustice. But Jesus is writing in the sand. And suddenly I can see what I did. And you know what's even crazier? We can even put John Cowell, that murderer, that honestly, in the depth of my heart, I want to put my hands around his neck and, and squeeze until he quits kicking. And I consider myself to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I just, just in the name of Jesus. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I don't even have the right to condemn him. Thank God there's one who does. But at the end of the day, according to Romans chapter 2, I'm inexcusable. If I denounce the injustice without, without renouncing the injustice within. And at the end of the day, I got to do both because God cares both about justice and about purity. At the end of the day, I got to speak up. When I see the orphan or the widow being oppressed, I've got to speak up. At the end of the day, I do have to speak up and decry injustice in the world, but... I've got to speak up in my prayer closet and in the house of God just as much to renounce the sin and injustice in my own heart. Because at the end of the day, I want to give the Father justice for his son, Jesus Christ. And the justice for which his heart burns is justification, is salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of sin. The taking away of the burden. We can live with such a sense that I've been done wrong. I've been done wrong. I've been done wrong. And I can focus so much on the fact that I've been done wrong that I can't even see anymore the fact that I've done wrong. I've been wronged and I can't see that I've wronged, that I've hurt the heart of the Father. And I need to be able to see both. We need the kind of Christians that care both about justice and purity. 
They're a rare breed these days. God cares. He cares about both. And at the end of the day, he's going to bring about both. The only question is, will we surrender our hearts to him? Will we go with him? Bow your heads. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're here in this place today. I give you praise. I give you glory. I give you honor. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall sovereignly upon every heart, upon every soul. And that you would open our hearts and our minds to the revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that each and every one of us in this place today would have a personal moment with you. A personal moment with you in which we recognize you to be the judge. We call upon a father who judges with impartiality each and every man's works. And so we must live our lives here with reverent fear. I thank you that you care about justice. And every injustice, you're going to deal with it. There's not a single injustice that you will not deal with. You will, you will deal with it. There's no such thing as anyone getting away with anything because you see all things and you know. But Father, I pray that we would embrace both the good news of that and the bad news. The good news that every wrong that has been done to me and to my people is going to be made right by the God who sees all things. But number two, every wrong on the inside of me, every wrong that I've done, you're going to make that right too. But I pray you make it right by forgiveness and reconciliation in response to our faith. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would release faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst today. Release an overwhelming and abounding faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in our midst today. And we trust you to do it. We believe you to do it. We thank you. I pray for understanding, Lord, that you would cover my inability to communicate. I pray that you would overwhelm any of my flaws with your perfection and your righteousness. And I speak peace to every heart and to every soul and great encouragement in Jesus' mighty name.